listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to episode 54 of Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast. And to start off our news, the beautiful game took the world stage this week in Brazil and got off to a pretty ugly start uh, because the streets of Sao Paulo um, were uh, awash in traffic chaos and labor unrest. Um, There have been a number of strikes as well as public protests um, in recent weeks leading up to the opening of the games, uh, primarily aimed at dissatisfaction and uh, widespread resentment among the public for the uh, vast amounts of money that have been poured into putting on this event um, and uh, general um, unhappiness among the public about uh, what seems like um, pretty inequitable uh, priorities on the part of the government. There was uh, a massive transit strike in recent days, which actually uh, um, led to uh, some uh, pretty chaotic scenes where we actually had, um, you know, a transit strike being deemed illegal in Sao Paulo. Um, there was uh, traffic chaos and a lot of public panic all across the streets. And uh, uh, reportedly, there were traffic jams that were about 200 kilometers um, of a matrix of solid gridlock, reports The Guardian. Um, like a, quote, heaving, seething tumor suffocating the entire city. So, right, uh, not exactly the kind of festive atmosphere that people were anticipating. Um, on the other hand, we know that there, you know, these protests are nothing new, and actually some of the strongest protests emerged uh, last year, um, also related to transportation. But that time it was um, local people revolting against what they saw as unreasonable uh, bus fares, and uh, that was reflective, again, of just general um, dissatisfaction with the quality of public services and resentment towards uh, the government, which is um, uh, has, has been seen to be sort of moving away from its... Um, its populist tack. It's at Slate, they reported that um, public sector employees in Brazil have actually don't have access to the same sorts of arbitration mechanisms that private sector workers have traditionally had, which uh, raises the likelihood of um, labor disputes um, ending in, in an impasse such as the one we're seeing now. And uh, meanwhile, the uh, airport workers were also threatening to strike um, leading up to the games in Rio. So lots of lots of tension there. This is just one of many uh, egregious uh, labor injustices that have been happening related to world sporting events. We've reported before on the uh, horrible forced labor circumstances in, in Qatar, and we'll continue reporting on this as it goes on. Uh, we also plan on having Dave Zirin on to, uh, at our next podcast to talk about his work in Brazil, and we hope to bring more of that soon. So, closer to home, on June 6th, the Vermont Governor Peter Shumlin signed a bill that gives early childhood care and education workers the right to organize and collectively bargain. This has been part of a four-year struggle in the state that was led by the Vermont Workers Center, the same people who brought you Vermont's single-payer health care bill, um, to help these workers, many of whom rely on state subsidies to fund their, the child care that they provide, to get recognition for their work, and it comes on the heels of last year's victory in that state for home health care aides. In an interview with Truthout's Jonathan Levitt, State Senate Majority Leader Philip Baruth said, the first stage is getting people to value early childhood education itself. We've seen that battle happening all over the place. We've seen President Obama come out in favor of um, early childhood education and it be the center of a rather large battle here in New York. And the next stage, of course, is then getting people to value the workers who provide that early childhood education. So about 1,500 workers, mostly women, will be covered by Vermont's new bill, which was supported by, among others, Senator Bernie Sanders, who went back to the state to speak on behalf of the workers. And notes Anna Gebhardt, one of the childcare workers who will be covered by this, um, and she's a 15-year early childhood educator, said, I don't think it's a coincidence that early childhood educators are primarily women and our labor is so undervalued. I think there's a direct correlation to that. I've heard this many times in interviews with people who provide this level of education. It's worth noting that the younger the children, the lower the wages, and the more female-dominated the workforce. Um, And this is true from early childhood, pre-K, home child care, Mm -hmm. all the way up to, you know, college. We see more men and more prestige and more money the the older the kids get. And greater union representation. Yes, absolutely. Um, And, you know, tenure, something we'll be getting to shortly on today's podcast. Yes. 
So, uh, back to far-flung corners of the world. Um, cabbies across Europe protested against the uh, Silicon Valley invasion of Uber, which is, uh, in case you uh, hasn't come to a city near you yet, it is um, a for-hire uh, driver service that you can use uh, using a digital app. Um, so traditional cabbies um, in places like London, Paris, Madrid, Barcelona, Berlin, Milan, and Rome, um, they actually staged um, the, what you might call sort of a, 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 a traffic slow down and organized sort of um, strike uh, that uh, that was basically um, uh, projecting their uh, their opposition to Uber uh, and they say that um, the competition from Uber is undercutting their business and sort of damaging uh, their livelihoods in the sense that they're getting around a lot of regulatory uh, they're they're taking a lot of regulatory shortcuts that uh, conventional cabbies are still subject to um, for example you know Uber drivers they kind of uh, act like you know sort of independent uh, for hire car services and so they're not subject to the same kinds of uh, taxes or licensing requirements um, you know, medallion fees, and, and they can also charge things like surge fees, which, um, you know, instead of a flat meter rate or a consistent meter rate, they can actually charge based on the level of traffic that they're experiencing or the level of business that they that they have. So um, there are all sorts of things about this industry that, that made the cabbies feel like um, they are... Um, uh, their their livelihoods are are really at stake in this, and they managed to uh, coordinate this continental kind of phalanx of traffic disruption, which was uh, pretty interesting. And it kind of raises this uh, question of you know uh, Uber is uh, after all an American company. What about American cabbies? And we've reported here before on both um, uh, taxi drivers here in New York and uh, even Uber drivers in Seattle actually organizing themselves. And it raises this question. You know, this has been a historically unorganized industry. And uh, perhaps, um, you know, more and more drivers are used to thinking of themselves as so-called independent contractors or, you know, well, and contract they're legally, workers. They legally are independent contractors. Right. It's not that they think of themselves as independent right. contractors. Or they, right. Uh, I mean, the industry is structured in such a right. way that um, they're put under all these sort of regulatory constraints that, you know, at the same time that they limit what they can do as workers, right, it also insists somehow that theoretically they are not a, a, a workforce, and therefore it's been really, really difficult to take collective action. For instance, uh, you know, the, the taxi drivers in New York City are still struggling just for things like health care, right? So um, we'll see where this goes, but, um, you know, keep on trucking. That's all I can say to the European cabbies. Cabbies of the world unite, or at least cabbies of Europe unite. Once again, back to the U.S., um, after a series of strikes by non-union janitors in Target, the retail giant's home state of Minnesota, that company has agreed to demand better labor standards from the companies that it subcontracts with to clean its big box stores. That subcontracting word is uh, one we talk about a fair bit on this podcast. The interesting thing to me about this, other than Target having to essentially demand that the companies it hires to do this work allow their workers to unionize. The interesting thing here is that the worker center involved in this, uh, the Centro de Trabajadoras Unidas en Lucha, or CITUL, they really took aim as Target as the biggest company in this sector and the, the employer of many of these different subcontractors. So by getting Target to actually make these demands of the subcontractors, that means that those workers, whether or not they actually work in Target stores and whether or not they've been anywhere near a Target, um, actually get better labor protections. It's a very interesting way of taking on the problem of subcontractors. Mm -hmm. So um, I would like to see more of this. If anybody else is doing a similar strategy, you can always email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org or shoot us a tweet with hashtag belabored. Um, supply chain organizing. Supply chain organizing. And, you know, the subcontractors, I mean, this was a problem that goes back to the justice, with, um, justice for janitors movement, right? That all of these companies deny that they are responsible for these workers, in this case not because they're independent contractors like the cab drivers, but because they are subcontractors, so they say they're not the boss, which right. uh, former belabored co-host Josh Idelson calls the who's the boss problem. Right. So in dealing with this, taking on the big forward-facing company that has a reputation to maintain, particularly Target, which likes to maintain its reputation as being slightly kinder, kinder and gentler than Walmart... Um, you Which can is really a low bar. By it's the way. a very low bar, but you know, and Target has proved how low that bar is in the past. But we see the way that these big forward-facing brands can actually be used to win some victories for a broader section of the workforce. Right. 
You're listening to Belaboured, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. So this week, a California Superior Court judge handed down a major ruling that could further boost the education reform movement nationwide in a suit known as the Vergara case. Uh, The judge ruled in favor of the plaintiffs, who were ostensibly nine California public school students, um, and they alleged that the laws that govern teacher tenure, which are, as you might know, the due process procedures that must be followed in order for a senior teacher to be dismissed. These are just generally sort of broad job security uh, measures that are built into, um, you know, contracts with teachers. Um, the, The judge ruled that these are unconstitutional because they violate the California Constitution's Equal Protection Clause. Essentially, they're saying that it is a civil right for every child to have a quality teacher in the classroom, and the judge ruled that tenure rules are what is responsible for um, what he calls a large population of grossly ineffective teachers in public schools. Um, Obviously, this ignores some of the systemic inequities throughout the public education system that we've talked about now and again on the podcast um, that basically result in, yes, these horrible, um, you know, inequalities across public school, but what it essentially does is it heaps all the blame onto teachers and it attacks a central tenet of teacher uh, unions uh, also. So uh, this is seen as a huge blow to um, uh, the education labor sector. And, um, you know, obviously these nine plaintiffs were heavily backed by a slew of boosters for education reform, folks like, uh, you know, the Gates Foundation, Michelle Rees organization, Students First. And uh, you can guarantee that they're going to try to use this ruling as a springboard for using the courts in other parts of the country to take down teacher tenure and to get at teachers' unions uh, through the legal system. So what does this mean for teachers? What does it mean for the education reform movement? What does it mean for the, you know, the, the real civil rights uh, problems that persist in our public schools? So we talked to Frank Wells. He is a former public school teacher in Long Beach, California, and he is now um, spokesperson with the California Teachers Association, and we talked to him about the implications of this ruling. What do you see as the central argument that the plaintiffs are trying to put forward? Because on its face, they make it sound pretty reasonable. You know, this is about making sure every student has a quality teacher in the classroom, uh, you know, as a matter of their right to an education. So I guess, what do you see as the central underpinnings of the case? Well, the the case is built on a deeply flawed premise that any of these statutes are the direct cause of any ineffective teacher being in any classroom in California, and that's simply not the case. We had multiple witnesses on the stand, award-winning superintendents, principals, talking about, in support of these laws, and talking about how well they work in terms of managing personnel issues, where there are problems and this was borne out by the witnesses the other side put on, we do have dysfunctional school districts with bad management who don't evaluate teachers, who don't go into classrooms to see what's going on, and then they turn around and try and blame these laws for their own failure to do their own job. And what do you think of the claim that children's civil rights or equal right to an education are uh, violated? Because it it does seem like, well, some states certainly have been uh, against tenure, have tried to um, undermine it in various ways. This appears to be, I don't know if it's the first, but it appears to be a pretty novel argument against tenure, actually arguing that tenure is unconstitutional somehow. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons we find the whole thing so deeply flawed. There's nothing unconstitutional about these laws. There's no child being given unequal protection because of these laws. These laws do not assign teachers to schools. School districts and principals do. Um, The other side tried to make the case that somehow these laws cause uh, ineffective teachers being placed in low-income schools or schools where uh, where minority students are um, in greater proportion, and that's simply not the case. School districts hire teachers, and they decide where they put them, they generally have, you know, a tremendous latitude in making those assignments, and there's nothing in these laws that would disproportionately uh, affect uh, any particular group of children. There may be administrators out there who are not doing the right thing by evaluating teachers properly or, or assigning them or 
moving them around, but that has nothing to do with these laws. But also, it is clear that there are inequities in the educational system that do affect uh, children's right to an equal education, or that there are various forms of segregation that are at play in the public school system overall. So I guess, how do you parse that? Because on the one hand, this case seems to be trying to ascribe that somehow to teachers, like as the the actual people in the in the classroom. Um, whereas I think maybe many teachers would argue that there are inequities in the system, but that it's not the teacher's problem. It's kind of the whole system, right? Yeah, there are, there are definitely inequities in the system. And that's one of the reasons that we were Please, that the new funding formula in this year's state budget uh, that the governor put forward actually t- attempts to address that by allocating funding to schools for the first time uh, based upon um, the you know the poverty level of the school, the proportion of English language learners, and so forth. And so, what we're seeing is some of the neediest schools are getting more resources um, than they've had in the past. And that is an attempt to address some of these historical inequities. Mm-hmm. When children are named plaintiffs in a court case, it's obviously um, it's easy for the public to have sympathy with them. I mean, who can possibly say no to you know uh, an argument arguing that children have a right to an education? So I guess how do you come at this from a political angle? I mean, because it seems like so much of the publicity around this case has been based around making the teachers essentially seem kind of like the ones who are ruining education for these kids. So how do you frame the work that teachers do in such a way that makes people feel like teachers are actually maybe on the kids' side instead of anti-kid? Well, yeah, that's, that's something that we hope. We would hope the public understands that teachers are, you know, the first line when it comes to our classrooms, and they are there because they love kids and they want them to learn. Um, they are not the problem. There's there's a solution here, and in terms of you know discussing you know responding to the other side, I think what we're going to be doing as we move through the appeal process is getting the facts out there about what actually was testified to in this case, and in, you know more than just the sound bites that uh, the plaintiffs are putting out, because the, the evidence and the testimony in this case was was simply overwhelming from our standpoint, which is why we were so. Uh, deeply disappointed in the ruling. If you actually look at the ruling, there is not a lot of specifics in it in terms of testimony. And, um, you know, we believe that a careful analysis of the testimony and, and looking at actually what was said and by whom, um, it's very clear that these laws are not the problem. Mm-hmm. Why tenure? Um, I'm wondering why tenure has become this like sort of weird cudgel which to, <laughs> to hammer down on, on teachers' unions. Is it it's something about the idea of like job security for teachers that people are for some reason especially prone to be hostile to. I mean, I'm wondering, you know, of all the things that you could probably attack about the public education system, um, why, why zero in on teachers' job security? Well, I, yeah, it, I think the, the the term tenure is uh, first of all it's inappropriately used in this case, and and the concept is misunderstood by the public. Um, what we're talking about here is not any sort of a job for life or inability to be fired. All the law s- says is that a teacher who's gone through the probationary period, if a district decides to dismiss them for performance reasons, they have the right, which they don't always exercise, uh, to uh, to appeal the decision and have it looked at by an independent body uh, to make sure that there is a, there are valid reasons. You know that this teacher really is not performing and is doing a disservice to kids. But as far, as far as it being a real problem or, or anything in terms of districts being able to make personnel decisions, it's simply not true. The, the evidence in this case showed the overwhelming majority of dismissal cases never even go all the way through uh, to a hearing or a final decision. What, what usually happens when a teacher is served with dismissal notices, they either resign or retire or sometimes there'll be some sort of settlement worked out where the teacher, you know, can get health benefits through the end of the year, um, those types of things. So uh, these, these laws do not prevent teachers who don't belong in the classroom from being removed if necessary, but they do protect teachers who do belong in the classroom from being fired for arbitrary reasons, for speaking out on behalf of kids, on, on behalf of safety issues, um, and just making sure that they're, that 
you know, when a school district moves against the teacher, that they have legitimate cause to do so. Right. Uh, it's my understanding that these schools, they were in Los Angeles, weren't they? It was, the, was it the L.A. school district? Uh, the, the, most of the students came from L.A. There was at least one from Oakland. I see. Um, yeah, and so I don't, I don't know that they all came from L.A. Okay. Uh, one from Oakland, and I don't know where else. Right, because I know that um, there's been a charter school movement in L.A., and we, you know, we've, uh, you're, you know, the the uh, the union has also raised um, the connections between the school reform movement and, and charter movement and, and this case. And I'm just wondering, is there something about Los Angeles now that makes it a particularly kind of fraught, uh, like, seedbed for these kinds of education reform politics. And I think in terms of charter schools, what interest did they have in, in pushing a case against teacher tenure? Well, I think what they're trying to do, those, uh, those who would like to see more money going to uh, privately run charters, is to level the playing field in terms of employment rights to make it less attractive for the charter teachers to want to go into the public school system. Right now, there is a tremendous turnover rate among charter school teachers because they don't have the job protections, and um, which is not to say that they're all being fired, although many of them are at-will employees. Um, but a lot of times, they're just simply burning out because the expectations of them in the workday are, are often so great that um, you know they just they they. Go, they decide to go into the public system, uh, the traditional public system, under more uh, traditional uh, workday and so forth, where they were, they're not going to burn out as quickly. I thought um, there are no charter schools that are unionized. I thought the green dot schools have. Unionized. Yeah, there are. Uh -huh. There are, and we find you know the working conditions in those types of charters tend to be better, and the teachers tend to be much happier. Mm hmm. I mean, it seems like the charter movement and tenure are not like, um, you know, inherently diametrically opposed, right? I mean, does it just so happen to be that the people leading the education reform movement are just, they are both pro-charter and particularly anti-union? Um, I don't think it's a coincidence. I think that they see the traditional public school structure as uh, as a partial threat mm -hmm. to their model of doing things uh, right. in terms of, as I mentioned, drawing personnel away and so forth. Right. And uh, the money forces behind some of the uh, privatization efforts would like to see the, I mean, there's a great effort to expand uh, the privatization of public schools and to weaken or destabilize the current system makes it easier to do that. Uh-huh. Do the big education reformers, like the ones behind this case, do they dislike schools like Green Dot? Do they see them as uh, disruptive to the movement as well? I don't know that they, you know, you'd have to ask them. I really don't want to speculate what they think about Green Dot. I do think that most charter operators tend to um, resist the idea of unionization. Green Dot was kind of an anomaly because when the school was set up, uh, Steve Barr, the founder, you know, said he wanted it to be a unionized charter. Right, right. So it, was not, it was not a struggle there. So I think one of the things that I find interesting and curious about the way the school reform movement has been shaping up, particularly around Silicon Valley, is that um, you see these tech billionaires and millionaires kind of uh, plowing tons of cash into schools and um, and. And, and school reform, and uh, it seems like there isn't a whole lot of at least you know like monetary or corporate payoff for them. So I'm I'm wondering, is it more of an ideological thing, or you know, does this kind of um, feed into their sort of neoliberal worldview about you know shaping education uh, to be more like startups, <laughs> or is there something more material at stake for? for people like the ones who are pushing the Vergara trial? I think it's, you know, on a case-by-case -case basis, you'd have to talk to the individuals who are putting up the money. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I could speculate about why David Welch is doing this. Um, you know, he says he's doing it because he wants to improve, improve schools. Um, and we can take that at face value, but then you look at the people and the organizations that are supporting it, and there are a lot of organizations that are extremely hostile to, uh, to teacher labor, 
to rights for education workers. Um, uh, we have groups like Students First, Michelle's, Michelle Reed's group, uh, Parent Revolution, uh, Ben Austin's group, uh, Gloria Romero, who wrote the Parent Trigger Bill and who was the spokesperson for Prop 32 in California last election, which was virulently anti-union. Um, so, you know, the, these, whether or not these uh, millionaires and billionaires are motivated by altruism, they're attracting people who are not. Right. And I've also heard there's been speculation about the actual financial stakes that they might have in some of the new uh, sort of public-private partnerships that are cropping up around various public school initiatives that are tied to the education reform movement. For instance, you know, standardized testing and, and other things like that. Um, do you think that is a factor um, here in the Vargara trial? Well, it's certainly a factor in some of the, in some of the connections here in terms of the money and also in terms of the plaintiffs. The, the mother of one of the student plaintiffs is, is involved with, uh, I believe it's called Rocket or Rocket Chip Charter, which is a rapidly expanding uh, charter school organization, charter school group rather. Um, so there's, I mean, there's, uh, you know, some definite potential financial gain um, in, in weakening the traditional public school system. Mm-hmm. And also, um, do you think there's a connection here between Silicon Valley and this uh, push for more and more standardized testing and data-driven pedagogical models and things like that? And, and you know, all this uh, emphasis on evaluation and accountability and all that? I wouldn't know that I would be able to make a direct connection between Silicon Valley because other than, you know, David Welch and, of course, uh, the Gates Foundation and so forth, um, I'm not really that familiar with, you know, all of all the players in Silicon Valley and what they're doing in, in terms of it, uh, public education, but in terms of the, uh, the, but in terms of what you just brought up about testing and data driven, uh, and that in, that increasing, I mean, part of this whole trial was about um, using standardized test scores uh, to determine personal matters, including layoffs, and um, you know all, all the evidence. In fact, the biggest study that's just been done on that. Uh, that's been done on that uh, came out about a month ago, and it just shows that there's no good connection between looking at student test scores and teacher evaluation. And it's an extremely flawed way to try to measure teacher quality. Uh, teacher quality is much more complex than how a particular you know, particular students do on a standardized test score. It, 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 you know, it's they're they're trying to find the easy way, the the corporate way of determining, you know, who's a good teacher. Well, let's just look at the stats as opposed to actually taking the time to get in there, observe, have somebody who knows what they're doing in an administrative position, uh, performing a thorough evaluation. So it seems like the ed reform movement has been pushing this agenda for a few years now, and um, we're starting to see data that's showing that it's not really panning out. Like, I know that, you know, I'm here in New York City, and after, like, a decade of Bloomberg and all of his um, crazy neoliberal reforms, um, we're not seeing like market improvement in schools, and we're actually seeing um, a regression in some cases. Um, so, do you think that eventually um, the movement will will sort of um, collapse on its own evidence in a sense um, because it's not producing the data? I mean, I feel like when it first started, it was very fresh and new, and people were willing to invest that kind of um, like sort of tech evangelical faith in it. Um, but now, I, I'm, I'm I'm wondering if you know maybe it'll just kind of peter out because people are like, well, the results aren't there. Um, I would certainly hope that that would be the case. Um, but we seem to have a tradition of this country of latching on to something that doesn't make sense and that the data doesn't support and uh, going full speed ahead with it. I'm thinking of No Child Left Behind as an example, um, which is just so, deep, so deeply flawed in, in concept. And then the new administration came in with President Obama, and they 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 really kind of doubled down on the concept with their race to the top and states competing uh, for funding based on how much of these reforms that are very similar to what the, uh, these uh, Silicon Valley reformers are pushing are, are put into place. And so, you know, I, I would hope that eventually that people would start paying actual attention to the evidence and uh, see that this doesn't work instead of continuing to just up the ante. You know, if this doesn't work, maybe they'll say, well, it's still, you know, we've got to fire more teachers or the probationary period should be 20 years. And, you know, they just keep doubling down on the bad ideas that they've already tried that don't work.
Right. Yeah. That's um. I guess bad bad policy ideas do tend to take on sort of a zombie like quality after a while. Um, and just one last thing about the national implications, because I know that in some of the uh, initial reaction to this, it seems like people are wondering if it's going to have sort of a you know, ripple effects across the country. On the other hand, this is brought for a specific set of circumstances related to, um, you know, California schools. Do, do you feel like it has the danger of setting a precedent? I mean, it seems like they're using the courts would be sort of one way to get around both lawmakers and and maybe even public opinion if you can get at things like teacher tenure through legal decisions. Yeah, well, well, I think the other side is certainly emboldened by this. They've made it clear that they're looking at other states where education is a constitutional guarantee. Uh, they haven't, they say they haven't picked a particular state yet to go next, but they've definitely made it clear uh, that this is on their radar and they want to expand it. And uh, the organization that David Welch founded that brought the suit, Students Matter, I mean, on their material, it, it says quite clearly, advocacy through impact litigation. So uh, they are not about you know, going to the people, going through the legislature, going through the traditional process, they they want to work in court. Right, right. Um, it's sort of interesting that they're sort of taking, you know, taking uh, a page out of, you know, a lot of, a lot of education, a, a lot of progressive education advocates, like the Alliance for Equality Education here in New York has managed to actually use the courts to actually increase funding all around for schools and then, you know, implement more resources for teachers. And I guess they're trying to use the same tools in the opposite direction, which is, I guess, uh, very interesting. Yeah, but I think what they're doing here is just so overly broad. Um, one of the things I noticed during the trial was as, as students or administrators for their side got up on the stands, the anecdotes that they would uh, use to support this case uh, struck me as that they could have been told by any student or any principal or in any state in this country uh, that would have, you know, governed by completely different laws. And so, you know, a kid, uh, a seventh grader doesn't like his math teacher. Well, that isn't just, uh, something you're going to find in California. You're going to find that, you know, in, in another state with different governing laws and so forth. So there was no real connection between what they were trying to say about ineffective teaching and these specific laws that they were challenging. And um, so right. we'll see what happens as they try and take this out elsewhere. But it, it, I do think they're going to do it. Yeah. Um, I'm sure they'll be able to find a lot of plaintiffs who can testify about being bored in class one day. <laughs> you know, see if that yeah, rises I mean, to yeah, the level I of mean, constitutional I, scrutiny. Yeah, that, that, yeah that's, and that, that really wasn't what's so disturbing about this. It's like, you've got to be kidding. A kid doesn't like his eighth grade English teacher who also happens to be the Pasadena teacher of the year. And uh, this is the kind of thing that, uh, quote, shocks the conscience, as the judge said in his decision. Right. So um, we're, we're confident that um, a, an appellate court reviewing the evidence in this case is, is going to uh, do the right thing and uh, reverse this decision. Right, right. Were there parents in support of the other side? Because I thought that some of the people who were rallying in defense on the side of the teacher union and were actually parents groups too. So it's not really like the parents are really like, it's not really the way they kind of spin it with like parents and families versus teacher unions. No, no, it's not. I mean, there were par the parents of these students, obviously. Um, in fact, one of them testified and not the actual student. But I think teachers generally have the support of, of, of parents and I think we need to do, uh, uh, as this moves forward, we do need to do a job of educating parents and make sure they understand what the issues really are and not get, you know, not get sucked into this, uh, you know, tenure job for life argument that the other side is making because it's simply not true. So that was Frank Wells of the California Teachers Association. And I should add that uh, they are hoping that uh, the ruling in this case, which is at the California Superior Court level, is turned over in appeal. But uh, in the meantime, teachers are wringing their hands over what this actually means for public education. And I thought uh, what Wells was saying about, uh, you know, 
tenure being a particular sort of uh, you know target of the education reform mm-hmm. movement is really important here because in a way it's sort of this um, pretty clever tactic uh, you know it, it's so easy to sort of spin tenure into this uh, yeah. thing that is uh, you know they called it, it you know throughout the ruling in the actual wording of the decision they right. say like job for life right yeah. permanent employment it's so easy Wouldn't to talk about nice? this uh, to demonize teachers rather than talk about the real life issues that right. teachers have to deal with every day yeah well it was there was a piece um, that I will link to on the dissent website um, an opinion piece at Al Jazeera America this week about how the average experience time of teachers in classrooms these days has just plummeted all over the country. The average is like a year of classroom experience. And this is sort of horrifying when you think about it that way, right? Like, if you want to ensure a high-quality teacher in every classroom, one way to do that is make sure that people who have some experience and know what they're doing can, you know, do that for a while. As, as we say, practice makes perfect, right? The piece is about the the greening of the education workforce, and they don't mean green as in environmentally friendly. Um, and it's such an interesting thing. Like the teacher teaching workforce is getting younger, it's getting whiter, and it's getting more temporary. And this is actually the goal of the, the education reform work, um, movement. And I mean, I think their attacks on tenure are in one way like a fight I'd like to have, because this is where they're blatantly union busting. Right. This is this is where it's obvious. Right. When you say, oh, we want to bring in charter schools because we need to have, you know, experiments to see different ways that kids can learn and blah, blah, blah. That sounds great. Sure. And like Frank Wells said in this interview, charter schools are not necessarily non-union. Right. You could actually start a charter school that was union. The UFT, the union of teachers here in New York, has a charter school. Um, And L.A., where this ruling took place, was where Green Dot Public Schools. Right. But yeah. But when the education reform movement is going after tenure, it is crystal clear what they want. Right. Except, of course, it's also, you know, they, they can also just sort of very nefariously make the case that it's all about, you know, getting rid of bad teachers, right? Yeah, but, and like, the, t- the statistic that I saw about this was that, like, literally testified in this courtroom, 1% to 3% of these teachers are supposedly grossly incompetent. Right. 1% to 3%. They don't say how long those teachers have been there. They don't break down that statistic anymore. What is I mean, I thought my high school teacher? math teacher was grossly ineffective, but it was the highest ranked math department in the state, and that was the highest ranked school district or schools in the country in Massachusetts public schools. Thank you. Um, <laughs> proud product of Massachusetts public uh, schools right here. Which actually has like some of the more progressive teacher unions uh, in the country. Absolutely, right? and we will talk about that in the future. I'm right, sure. um, but the, and it's it's kind of amazing to me because like you know. Um, on the one hand, you know, this is obviously not to discount the opinions and, you know, the, the responses of, of students and all of this. But look, I mean, look, if, if we're going to label every teacher that has ever bored a seventh grade, you know, math student in class is like grossly ineffective, like there's something wrong with the way we're defining what teaching quality is. And, and the point of having a, um, you know, a professionalized, highly qualified, you know, well-trained, experienced teacher labor force that is organized, right, is yeah. to have like a longer view of what this profession is, right, and how to build a sustainable workforce, right? Yeah. And the other thing that I think is fascinating, which you you touched on a little bit with Wells, but that the influence of Wall Street on this movement is sort of well known, and I'll link to a couple of good pieces about that by a friend of the podcast, David Cabe, but the, the growing influence of Silicon Valley, which we've talked about before, we talked about a bit with Joanne Barkhan a few um, months ago. And in this case, right, he mentioned Rocket Ship, which Sheryl Sandberg of Facebook is involved with. He mentioned, and sort of didn't go too deeply into this, but um, another, I'll link to a lot of these pieces on the Descent website. Are you sensing a pattern here, guys? A piece in the Los Angeles Times pointed out that the Los Angeles Unified School District has spent a whole bunch of money buying Apple iPads for students. And meanwhile, those, I mean, the California school system spends almost the least in the country, which you don't expect, right? You expect California, a nice liberal state. Nope, nope. Almost the least per student in the country um, on the school districts. But they're spending some of that money buying iPads for the students. Um, And that same superintendent who has presided over that program was testifying in this trial that the big problem was instead teacher tenure and not the fact that the schools don't have enough stuff to function and they're spending money on buying fancy bits of tech. Right. 
rather than say like you know school buildings that are not falling apart and trying to right. like improve school infrastructure and other things you know much more concrete investments than yeah. having like the latest gadget in well, every student right backpack. i mean ipads are cool i can't afford one so i don't know but i'm sure some of our listeners have ipads and i'm sure you guys love them but like I don't know if that's actually going to make the kids learn better. I um, have an idea. Having a good teacher in the classroom might actually do that. And having a teacher that is like that actually is paid a living wage might actually help as well. Yeah, weird. Um, yeah, I mean, I feel like if seventh grade, the aforementioned bored seventh grader in their math class had an iPad, they might just be playing iPad games and or like, you know, on Tinder with the cute girl. Do they let seventh graders on Tinder? Question for our listeners. Do 7th graders get to use Tinder? Hashtag belabored. Anyway. <laughs> I joke about this because this story is really depressing. Yeah. Um, and I function through black humor. But <laughs> I... Yeah, it's it's a depressing story. But I do think that, again, this is going to have gone too far. Yeah. I've said this before. I'm going to keep saying it. Um, I think that parents increasingly are seeing through this whole story um and another thing is like as i was reading the ruling um it just seems so transparent to me when you see it actually laid out the arguments laid out on paper how they insidiously use this language of populism and like of like celebrating youth Mm -hmm. and celebrating like students matter and students first right right or like parents first right or like waiting for superman right there are all these like great like this like awesome kind of silicon valley sloganeering and it kind of feeds into this idea this like sort of tech evangelism Mm -hmm. right um that is basically saying like in the future we won't need things like job security we'll we'll just rely on like the genius of like crowdsourcing or like you know these things that like um you know they sound great on the surface but when you get down to it i mean there are real social issues involved here and just like the fact that you know um, you know, white CEOs in hoodies can uh, run around saying things like, you know, move fast and break things. That doesn't necessarily mean that, uh, you know, we should have the same kind of laissez-faire approach to how we run massive public education systems, right? Or how we do uh, city budgets or how we handle our civil service. And, yeah. you know, I think where the convergence between like the tech um influence in this debate is and the union busting is um you know where we get to testing right and mm-hmm. the data driven kind of model yeah. of education where it's all about assessment right it's all about if we reduce people to numbers and scores then we will ultimately you know we just need to rely on the marketplace of ideas and what the data right. shows us to find the best quality right? right in reality you're dealing with real people right? right and and they and they operate on on a scale that is not strictly limited to ratings and and one of the things that that wells touches on and one of the the key um, concerns about the teacher union is it's not just about job security, but it's about what it'll do to the quality of the job. Because right. when you start dismantling things like tenure and job security, you're driving the system towards more assessment by data, more right. assessment by tests. Right. Right? So. right. And then who's going to want to become a teacher if you know that what you're facing is constantly having to give tests to your students that will determine whether or not you keep your job for a year or two, whether you get to keep your job long enough to learn to be good at it. I mean, I it took me a long time to learn to be a halfway decent journalist. It's not, you know, this is not a thing that you become an expert at in a year, no matter how many times Teach for America tries to tell us that. Right. And I mean, the the turnover rates, like these outrageous turnover rates in right, the teaching exactly. workforce, especially in the first two, three years, yeah. right? Um, education reformers will look at the exact same statistics and will say like, oh, that is such a pity. You know, it must be because our schools are failing. There were more tests, blah, blah, blah. And they, they don't, they fail to get, any, right. they did, you know, it is one of the reasons people leave their job is because they feel like they can't do their job well. They don't have the supportive, nurturing environment that makes them want to come to work every day. And that is yeah. a really serious problem. And if you're, I mean, and on, honestly, I I don't know if these education reformers care. Maybe they're just happy with I the Teach for America model, where like I, everyone's just milling they, through. They in a absolutely year term. do like the Teach for America model, right? Yeah. That this is the well, it's the Peace Corps. Of we the we have to wind this down. Sadly, clearly, we have a lot of thoughts about this. We're really? sure we're sure that our listeners do too, and we would love to, as always, hear from you. Um, hashtag belabored or belabored at descentmagazine.org. Um, especially if you're a teacher in California public schools, tell us what you think. Right. We want to know going on in your classroom. So now it is time for ARG, where we talk about the pieces that we saw in these past two weeks that we wish we had written but ultimately did not. So, Sarah, take it away. 
So, the piece that I wish I had written is a, a multiple ARG winner, uh, Jennifer Pan. She has a piece called Pink Collar in the new, well, it's a new print issue of Jacobin. It's also up on the website. You can read it there. Um, and it is about one particular form of pink collar work, uh, the PR industry. And she points out that journalists in general, <clears throat> not like I've ever done this, tend to complain about mock um, and sort of disparage the people who do public relations and communications. Um, you know, we talk about press flax and we say all of these kind of nasty things. And she points out that this is an industry of, uh, once again, mostly women doing emotional labor for money. Um, and that a lot of the disparagement of it is quite possibly related to that fact. It's a really interesting piece. It's a long piece. Um, it's worth pointing out that these, that PR is one place where people who cannot, in fact, make a living as a journalist can get a better job in an industry like ours that still remains kind of sexist and racist. Um, you can, in fact, leave that when you're tired of it and go somewhere else where you probably make more money and can, you know, maybe support a family if that's a thing you're thinking about doing. But then you get as the proverbial uh, no respect. So it's a really interesting piece because it challenged me and the way I think about the press releases that land in my inbox all the time, some of which, you know, may in fact be ridiculous and badly targeted. And uh, she, you know, makes the offhand remark that maybe those bad press releases are in fact a form of labor slowdown. So just a thought, check out the piece. We will, as always, link it at the Descent website. Yes. And um, I came across this piece by... Um, Peter Van Buren, uh, Tom Dispatch, and it's called A Rising Tide Lifts All Yachts. And uh, he um, challenges some pretty popular notions about why we have the inequality that we have here in the U.S. And, um, you know, he starts with just sort of the, the bare fact of uh, the United States slipping from its status as the, glo the globe's number one economic power. And he talks about um, Piketty's book, uh, capital as a kind of a springboard into a broader discussion about why we have such egregious levels of inequality in the so-called, you know, land of opportunity, and why so many Americans remain desperately poor while wealth becomes increasingly concentrated in the top one percent or perhaps you know the top oh one percent of the population. Um, and he returns to these popular sort of canards that are circulated about why uh, the poor are sort of to blame for uh, you know their their own. Um, and their own problems, and uh, he kind of challenges them one by one in a rather interesting and on-the-point way. Um, he says, you know, he starts with the question, you know, uh, you know, why don't the unemployed or underemployed simply find better jobs? And then, you know, it's easy for lefties like us to dismiss that as, um, you know, just common, just myopic um, right-wing rhetoric. But, you know, this is a real question that people might have, and so we actually you know, looks through what the data says, and, and he comes up with, um, you know, well, another way of phrasing the question is this, quote, why don't we just blame the poor for their plight? Mention unemployment or underemployment, and someone will inevitably invoke the old pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps line. If workers don't like retail or minimum wage jobs, or if they can't find good-paying jobs in their area, why don't they just move, quit retail, or quit Pittsburgh, Detroit, Cleveland, St. Louis, and... And move where to do what, right? Um, and he notes that the country has lost one-third of all decent factory jobs. Quote, almost six million of them between 2000 and 2009, wherever there is supposed to be, piles of people are already in line, right? So just simply moving to some magical place where all the jobs are just doesn't really apply here anymore. In addition, many who lost the jobs they don't have, he writes, don't have the means to move or a friend with a couch to sleep on when they get to, say, Colorado. Some have lived for generations in the places where the jobs have disappeared. And as for the jobs that are left, uh, one out of four working Americans earn less than $10 per hour. At 25%, at the U.S. has the highest percentage of low-wage workers in the developed world. So, you know, these people who are unemployed, he writes, they are neither all lazy nor all unskilled, and at present they await news of the uncharted places in the U.S. where those 10 million unfilled jobs are hidden. Moving there to find better work isn't an option. So um, he also debunks the myths around, you know, revitalizing these old Rust Belt cities. You might see these, like, you know, sort of she-she initiatives to, you know, bring back Detroit and, oh, you know, like, bring back Youngstown or whatever. 
um, you know, he says, if you travel to these Rust Belt towns, you find that um, the economic rebirth they tout, quote, seems to be repurposing buildings that once housed factories and shipping depots and bars as bars and boutiques. Abandoned warehouses are now trendy restaurants. A former radiator factory is an artisanal coffee shop. In other words, right. In other words, in a place where a manufacturing plant once employed hundreds of skilled workers at union wages, a handful of part-timers are now serving tapas at minimum wage plus tips. So is this economic revitalization or is it just a refutalization of these completely abandoned sectors of our economy? You be the judge. But um, just a reminder, you know, as Peter Van Buren says, it's never as simple as it looks on the surface. Um, And he reminds us that, you know, if... You know, people say manufacturing is dead, right? And and the future is all about these high tech, information age um, jobs. And so, you know, raising this other question: you know, Why can't factory workers just be retrained to do that? And then he answers, of course, maybe some percentage could, but the U.S. graduated over 1.6 million students with bachelor's degrees in 2014, many of whom already have such skills. Bottom line: jobs create the need for training. Training does not create jobs. So he goes through, you know, point by point about all these. Popular stereotypes about why the unemployed are so screwed in our economy, and it comes down to this: you know, it, the more you try to scrutinize these people for reasons to blame them, the more it comes back to us. It reflects back on our habit of blaming the poor and how it distracts us from these much deeper inequities and social ills that are built into the structure of our economy. And that's sort of the greatest social deficit that feeds into inequality. It is not just a, a you know social well-being gap, but it is an empathy gap, right? And that is what is that is what is reinforcing material poverty across the country right now. That's all we have time for today, folks. That, uh, as usual, we welcome your ideas, thoughts, suggestions, questions, experiences of being a teacher in California or anywhere else, with or without tenure at belabored at dissentmagazine.org or tweeted us at hashtag belabored and we will be back in two weeks with an update on the World Cup. This life is hard, so hard I must go. Eight twin to five, hell not, we can't go. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Until next week, join us online using hashtag belabored. Belabored.